passage we're going to look at today, we can see that he could also be an angry healer. Turn to Mark chapter 2, if you would, and we will begin our discussion with a paragraph that you actually studied last week. I just want to pick up a comment or two on that paragraph because it fits into the theme of our teaching this morning. remember hearing a story about a Sunday school class, and this particular morning, the teacher in the Sunday school class had told the children in the class the story about the Pharisee and the publican. You remember that story? The Pharisee stood with his head held high and pointed to this publican standing over here and said, Lord, I thank you that I am not like that publican. The publican, meanwhile, was over there praying at the same time, and he was praying, Lord, with his head bowed, he prayed, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. So the Sunday school teacher finished the story, drew the application, and asked one of the girls in the class to close in prayer. And she stood and prayed, Lord, I thank you that I am not like that Pharisee. I don't have a trained eye, but I think she kind of missed the point of the story there. And the point of the story is how easy it is for us to be just like the Pharisees without realizing it. Now, in the passage we're going to look at today, we find Jesus in direct conflict with the Pharisees. And what this conflict illustrates through a series of several narratives is the distinction between two approaches to the Christian life, two approaches to the spiritual life, two approaches to Christianity. The Pharisees represent one brand of Christianity, and Jesus represents the other. This conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees is with us today. It's not a conflict between Jesus and secular people. It's a conflict between Jesus and religious people. It's perfectly possible to be a very religious person and yet be operating with a spirit that is directly contrary to the spirit of Jesus. And that's illustrated in this passage before us. The two brands of Christianity that are on the market today is the legalistic brand of Christianity represented by the Pharisees. The other brand of Christianity is the liberated brand of Christianity represented by Jesus and his apostles. And as we look through this passage, we will see that there are four very distinct contrasts between these two approaches to the spiritual life. Now, the first one you actually looked at last week. Legalistic Christianity, as represented by the Pharisees, teaches that believers are to be separate from the world. Remember how scandalized that the Pharisees were that Jesus hung out with tax gatherers and sinners, the, the scum of Jewish society, and yet these were, these were the people with whom he, he had dinner and who he invited to become followers of his. Remember, that story developed out of Levi's call to be an apostle. He was a tax collector. Jesus summoned him to be his disciple. And Levi, without a second thought, abandoned everything and left to follow Jesus. We have a, a new puppy dog in our house. We've had a cat in our house for about a year and a half. And over the course of these last several weeks, I've had the opportunity to examine the differences between dogs and cats. And I've learned there is one profound difference between dogs and cats. Dogs come when you call them. (laughs) Cats take a message and get back to you. (laughs) Well, Levi was in the first category. When his master called, he came. And then he held a dinner party for the only friends he had, which were other tax gatherers and sinners. And he was rebuked by the Pharisees for this. How could any respectable person hang out with such a group of lowlifes? Jesus' analogy, as you remember, was the analogy of a physician. A physician comes to take care of the sick. 
I have a family doctor. I've been meaning to complain to him about the clientele that he draws. Every time I go into that waiting room, I see people that are messed up. They're sick. They're barely functional. They drag themselves in. They drag themselves out. And I've been meaning to complain about this. Look, you've got to get a better class of clientele or I'm going to stop coming. And he would say to me, that's why I'm here. That's why I went through the training. That's why I've set up my, my shop here in this community because I want to be a healer. I'm here for diseased people. I'm here for sick people. I'm here for people that, that have weakness and, are, and need to be restored and returned to health. That's why I'm here. And Jesus says, that's why I've come. I haven't come to spend my time with the righteous, with the people who don't feel they have any need for redemption and for, for renewal. I've come to help those who are sinners. Now, in imitating the pattern of Christ, we too are to befriend tax gatherers and sinners. In other words, the liberated brand of Christianity that Jesus taught does not teach that believers are to be separated from the world. It teaches that believers are to be salt and light in the world. Befriending sinners, socializing with them, playing golf with them, meeting them for dinner, taking them out to lunch in order to draw them to the great position. As Jesus taught, we are to be in the world, but he cautions we are not to be of the world. So Jesus says there is a proper concept of biblical separation, but it's not that we are to be geographically separate from the world. We are to be spiritually distinct, not, uh, not physically distinct from them, but spiritually distinct. The kind of separation is not a separation of contact but it's a separation in our conduct and character. Legalistic Christianity seems to have as its goal to get people from the safety of their, of their home borough. And if they are forced to leave the safety of their home borough, at least let them flee to one holy huddle, from there to another holy huddle, to a third, and then flee back to the safety of their borough. Eliminating, minimizing the amount of contact that we have with diseased sinful people. But Jesus says that's not the spirit of Christianity. The spirit of Christianity is to befriend those who are tax gatherers and sinners because those are the kind of people that Jesus draws to himself. In fact, that's an apt analogy for this room. If you look around this room, what you are looking at is one giant sick bay. All of us are here because we recognize that we have been ravaged by sin. We are diseased people and we need to touch in the great position. So Jesus says we are to be like him, to imitate him in this heart for those who are, who are sinful and who are tax collectors. Befriend them and draw them to the great position. So that's the first contrast between legalistic Christianity and liberated Christianity. Legalistic Christianity emphasizes separation from the world, teaches that believers are to be separate. Liberated Christianity teaches that believers are to befriend worldlings, to be in the world, but not of the world. Legalistic Christianity teaches us to be neither of the world nor in the world. Now, the second contrast is found in verse 18, and that is that legalistic Christianity focuses on extra-biblical standards of behavior and righteousness. Liberated Christianity focuses on biblical standards of behavior and righteousness. Now, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Some people came and asked Jesus, how is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not. Disciples of John were fasting, we're told. We're not exactly sure why. My guess is because at this time John was incarcerated. He was in custody. His disciples wanted God to set him free. 
And so they fasted and out of a sincere uh, appeal to God to release their, their teacher. Or it's possible that because John's ministry was identified with sorrow for sin, with repentance, that they fasted as an expression of personal sorrow and repentance. That was the focus of John's ministry, to bring people to, to, to a place of repentance and sorrow and grief for sin. And they may have fasted as his followers to, to symbolize that. Now, the Pharisees fasted simply out of, out of habit. The Old Testament specified that all believers were to fast one day a year, the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. Every believer in Yahweh was to fast on that one day. That was the biblical standard for that particular spiritual discipline. That's what God required of his people, that and no more. Well, the mentality of the Pharisees, which can often creep into our own understanding of the spiritual life, is that if a little is okay, then more is better, and too much is just right. Now, what the Pharisees decided, if fasting one day a year is good, then fasting more frequently than that is better. But they didn't increase the RPMs to twice a year, double what the Scriptures required. They didn't even go to a once-a-month fast, 12 times what the Scriptures required, not even twice a month, 24 times. Not even once a week, which had been 52 times, they fasted twice a week. They fasted 104 times the amount that the scriptures required. Now, because these were the spiritual leaders in the land, conformity to this standard began to be the measure of spirituality among God's people. If you were going to be truly spiritual, truly mature, you would observe and adhere to this extra-biblical standard of behavior and righteousness. Now, it's very easy for us to be victims of the same mentality. All sorts of extra-biblical standards can creep into the church, and they become the focus of the church and the measure of spirituality. Now, there's no reason why we cannot personally adopt extra-biblical standards for ourselves as safeguards for ourselves or things that we feel God has led us personally to do. What we must not do is impose those standards on other people. It might even be appropriate in some circumstances to ask others to observe these extra-biblical standards. I've got a friend who flies a private plane. I flew with him one time in the passenger seat. We're cruising about 10,000 feet, and right in front of me was a little plaque said, if you would like to smoke, please step outside. <laughs> said, okay, I think I'll pass. remember talking to a, a family member who goes to a church in another state, and I just casually mentioned offhand that some people in our fellowship were videotaping the, the TV show Dallas for one of our missionaries, and this person was just horrified. She says, our pastor won't even let us watch that TV show. See, So here had become an extra-biblical standard that had become some kind of measure, see, of spirituality, enforced by a pastor who I'm sure was well-meaning. You can find this with church membership. There are many churches today who require their members to pledge that they will abstain from alcohol and tobacco. Now, those are not biblical standards, and it is wrong, it is legalistic to compel believers to adhere to those standards. The biblical standard of consumption of alcohol, for instance, is moderation, not abstinence. The Puritans I read this past week uh, taught believers to abstain from sex 
on Sundays. They also had the erroneous belief that you gave birth on the same day that you had conceived. And therefore, if a Puritan woman gave birth on Sunday, she was in deep guacamole. Because this, because this became an extra-biblical standard of righteousness that, that became the focus of people's understanding of the spiritual life. And this is what Jesus is seeking to confront. The focus of liberated Christianity is on biblical standards of righteousness. Not how many times you have devotions, not when during the day you have devotions. I've understood in the evangelical community that earlier is generally considered more spiritual than than later. Uh, Not how many verses of the Bible you memorize, not how regularly you attend church, not how much of your your income you give to the church, although we are commanded to give, no percentages are given. All of these can become legalistic standards. But as we saw in Galatians, the focus of liberated Christianity is on issues of the heart and character. You know, the, the list of the fruits of the Spirit, these are the marks of spiritual maturity. First one is love. In other words, the focus of liberated Christianity is on this. Am I becoming a more loving individual? Am I becoming more concerned about people? more interested in people, more sensitive to people, more focused on people, more responsive to the needs of people. So that's the mark of spiritual maturity. Joy is the second. Am I, am I becoming a more joyful person? Am I becoming a person that's more and more of a delight for others to be around? Am I becoming a person of optimism and confidence? That's a mark of spiritual maturity. Peace is another Am I becoming a person who's experiencing a greater sense of inner harmony and stability and God's confidence and confidence in God and his control of my life and my circumstances? See, those are the marks of spiritual maturity, but they're gloriously intangible. You can't quantify those. You can't measure them. You can't count them. And we have this almost irresistible pull to drift toward things that we can mark and measure and count as the measures of spiritual maturity. Jesus says we must never do that. We must affirm biblical standards, and those are binding on believers. Our Lord and Savior commands us to do certain things, and we can't fudge on those. But we are not to make non- or extra-biblical standards binding on other believers. I expect in this room this morning there are parents who homeschool their children. We have other parents who have their children in private Christian school. We have still other parents who have their children in public school. Now, the scriptures are silent on this issue. The scriptures do not direct parents into one of those three educational choices or the other. And therefore, we must not use those choices as a way of gauging the spirituality of other parents, regardless of which option we have chosen for ourselves. It's perfectly possible for God to lead us in the quiet conviction of our own hearts to feel that one option or the other is best. But we must never compel others to follow suit or measure their spirituality by those extra-biblical standards. So that's the second mark of legalistic Christianity. It focuses on extra-biblical standards and makes them binding on God's people. Liberated Christianity focuses on biblical standards and makes those binding on believers. Now, Jesus responds additionally in verses 19 through 22 in this way in response to the fasting question, which was a good question. I believe this was asked in innocence. This was asked for clarification, for information. People couldn't help but observe that the Pharisees and John and Jesus were three of the spiritual leaders in their community. 
two of these spiritual leaders exercised fasting as a spiritual discipline. Jesus' disciples did not. In fact, I expect that this came up because on one of the fast days, they fasted on Thursday and Monday, they happened to pass by Levi's house and they saw the disciples of Jesus inside Levi's house, porking out, if you will pardon the expression. Well, you have to think about that for a minute. While, while they themselves were trying to figure out some way to make it to dinner. And they couldn't help but notice the contrast and want clarification. So they asked Jesus, why is it that your disciples do not fast? And he answers by using this analogy. Jesus answered them, verse 19, How can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot so long as they have him with them. Jewish weddings lasted an entire week. It's a week-long party, week-long celebration. Now, that week-long celebration would cover a Thursday and a Monday, two of the fast days. What do you do? Nobody wants a gloomy Gus at a wedding reception. You don't want somebody over in the corner with dust on their heads wearing a gunny sack in the middle of your wedding reception. So even the Pharisees recognized this, and they exempted their followers from fasting during a wedding celebration. In fact, they forbid their followers from fasting when they were in the presence of the bridegroom. That's why Jesus says, you notice, they cannot fast. It was the the duty of the guests of the bridegroom, those that were the closest to him, his closest friends, it was their responsibility to gladden the heart of the bride and the groom. So they were forbidden to fast because it was an expression of mourning and sorrow and grief. Now, Jesus says that analogy applies to this circumstance. John the Baptist predicted the coming of the bridegroom. The focus of his ministry was on repentance. Fasting was an appropriate response for his disciples. But now, Jesus says, the bridegroom that John predicted has come. The wedding party has begun. And now there is a different response which is appropriate, and that is the response of celebration and joy. In other words, the principle is that when God begins to do a new work, a new and different response is required. Worship, spiritual responsiveness, spiritual expression, uh, spiritual forms of worship will begin to take on new forms in response to the new work that God is doing. Now, Jesus adds an oblique reference in verse 20, almost parenthetical, I think, but he says, just as a caution, the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. Notice the, notice the way it's phrased. It's not that he will go away from them, so this is not a reference to the ascension, but he will be taken from them, and on that day they will fast. This is the first mention, I believe, in Mark's gospel uh, of Jesus' death, the first indication that he was aware that the end of his ministry would culminate in his crucifixion. He goes back to his theme in verse 21 to illustrate this concept that new life requires new forms. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. My wife, Debbie, uh, can abundantly testify to the truth of this illustration. We have a very active seven-year-old boy in our house. Friday, J.D. went off to school with a perfectly intact pair of pants. He came home from school. He'd blown both knees completely out. Blew one of them out walking to school, if you can believe that. 
Well, Debbie, in every experienced seamstress, knows that if you are patching a tear on a garment, you do not patch a pair of 501 blues with a, with a piece of unshrunk, unprewashed denim. If you do, you run that through the washing machine, that patch will shrink, it will pull away from the 501s, and you'll have a bigger hole than you started with. Jesus uses the second analogy in verse 22. No one pours new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, he pours new wine into new wineskins. Every Jewish winemaker knew that you did not put new, freshly fermented wine into an old, brittle wineskin. Wineskins at that time were made out of leather, like Boda bags. And over time, they would become aged, worn, dried out, brittle. If you put new wine in one of these brittle wineskins, the pressure that would continue to build as the wine finished the fermentation process would blow the seams on that leather wineskin, and you would lose the wineskin... But, Jesus points out significantly, you would also lose the wine as well because of the the pressure that that builds up. One of the interns was telling me this last week that his father-in-law is a uh, homemade vintner and he ferments wine, makes wine in his own basement. He's got a little unit with a glass cask and a little relief valve to bleed off the pressure that builds in the canister as the wine ferments. Well, one time, this relief valve got blocked. So much pressure built up in this glass canister that it blew the cork right off the top of the thing into the ceiling, shattered the glass canister, and dumped 10 gallons of wine all over his basement floor. Now the point that Jesus is making is if God is fermenting new wine, you must put that in a new form. You cannot try to wedge or squeeze the new life or the new work of God into some old form which has outlived its usefulness. And what Jesus is, I think, acknowledging here or pointing out is the addictive nature of tradition. Books have been written on the seven last words of Jesus from the cross. A friend of mine says, books ought to be written on the seven last words of the church. We've never done it that way before. (laughs) Remember, Peter had to learn this lesson the hard way. He was praying on the the roof in Joppa. and, and, And the Lord let down a sheet from heaven. And in this sheet were a whole batch of unclean animals that Peter had never touched and eaten in his life. And the Lord says to Peter in this vision, Peter, arise, kill, and eat. And then in one of the classic oxymorons of all time, Peter says, no, Lord. No, my Lord, my sovereign liege. He says, no. You know, lips that touch wine will never touch mine. So Jesus gathers up the sheet, hoists it back into heaven, drops it down a second time. Still the same unclean animals in the sheet. And Jesus says to him, Peter, arise, kill, and eat. He says, no, Lord, I don't smoke, and I don't chew, and I don't go with girls that do. So the Lord folds it back up and hoists it back into heaven. And then the third time, he drops it down. Same unclean animal, same command. Peter, arise, kill, and eat. And Peter finally began to get the message. Let no man declare unclean what the Lord has declared clean. 
I don't know how many churches in this country have Sunday evening services for the only reason that they've always had one. Why do we have a Sunday evening service? Well, we've always done it that way. Maybe meeting no needs, it may be attended by no one, but we've always had one, so we keep one alive. Flog that thing to death just because we've always had one. A friend of mine pastors a small church in a community not too far from here. Church historically and traditionally had a Wednesday evening prayer meeting in the church building. Two problems with that is they were down to about five or six people. And the second problem is that the reason they were down to five or six people is that the building had no air conditioning, and it's tough to get into a real you know, mood of prayer when it's 115 degrees in the shade in the summer. But there were a number of people that had come to this pastor and said, you know, we would really love to participate in a prayer meeting. We would like to do it. In fact, I, one of them said, would like to make my home available. I've got a nice big living room. We could probably have 15 to 20 people. I know there's at least that many people that have talked to me and would like to be involved in a home Bible study with a real emphasis on prayer. We would love to do it. Why don't we move the prayer meeting from the church building to this home? So they approached the leadership of the church with this proposal. And the leadership said, no, absolutely not. It's going to be a bona fide prayer meeting. It's going to be the real Megillah. It has to be held in the church building, and it has to be held on Wednesday night. N-O, no. End of discussion. Well, not surprisingly, it wasn't long before there was no prayer meeting at all. Here God was prepared to, to ferment some new wine, to create some new life in this church. But the leadership clung to this old, antiquated, outdated, useless wineskin. And as a result, they lost not only the wineskin, but they lost the wine as well. So the contrast, then, is that legalistic Christianity is rigid and it is traditional. Liberated Christianity is flexible and innovative. What we always must be prepared to do is to dispense with old forms of worship old forms of ministry, old strategies, old approaches, old organizational structures, if God is preparing to do a new work in our midst. That's often a, a decision point for a church to make. God is prepared to inject some new wine into this fellowship, but he insists that it be put into a new form, and a church will have a decision to make, uh, to cling to the old wineskin and lose the new wine, or to put that new wineskin into a new form. And it's not hard to spot churches that have made the wrong decision. They are lifeless and inert and stagnant and dead. They've lost not only the wineskin, but the wine itself. Now, there's a fourth contrast that's found in verses 23 of chapter 2 on through verse 6 of chapter 3. And this fourth contrast is that legalistic Christianity places ritual and tradition and rules and regulations ahead of human need. In liberated Christianity, it's just the other way around. Human need takes priority over ritual and tradition and rules and regulations. Verse 23, One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and as his disciples walked along, they began to pick some heads of grain. The Pharisees said to him, Look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? Now, what the disciples of Jesus were doing 
was perfectly permissible according to the Scriptures. In fact, there's an express uh, permission given in the Old Testament back in Deuteronomy that the Jews, as they made their way through a neighboring vineyard, could pick grapes as they walked along and pop them in their mouths for a little snack. They were going through a neighbor's cornfield or wheat field. They could do the same. They could rip off a stalk and peel it back and pop the kernel in their mouth for a little snack. Now, they couldn't take a sickle in there and they couldn't take a basket to carry anything out of them. But if they were looking for a little snack, they were hungry, they could make their way through a neighbor's field. Often right aways would cut through these, these fields at, at harvest time. So what they were doing was explicitly authorized by the Scripture. But the Pharisees had developed a set of rules that made what they were doing unlawful. When the Pharisees say it's unlawful on the Sabbath in verse 24, it was unlawful according to them. Not unlawful according to the Scripture, unlawful according to the Pharisees. So you see right away what had happened is they had made human teaching and human tradition more authoritative and more binding than the teaching of the Word of God. Now, the Pharisees at this time, in fact, the disciples had broken not just one law, according to the Pharisees, but four laws. They broke the laws of harvesting on the Sabbath. They had threshed on the Sabbath because they separated the stalk from the head of grain. They had winnowed because they would peel off the husk outside the grain, and they'd prepared a meal. So they were sinners four times over for doing something which the Scriptures permitted them expressly to do. Now, the Pharisees at this point were absolutely nuts about the Sabbath. Uh, they refused to do work of any sort on the Sabbath. In fact, the Romans, when they laid siege to Jerusalem in 68 to 70 AD, did all of their hardest work on the Sabbath because they knew that the Jews would not lift a finger to resist them. It's one of the strategies in the Six-Day War, if you remember. They attacked Israel on the Sabbath to try to catch them at a point when they wouldn't resist. I've done a little research into this, and I've come up with David Letterman's top 10 worst Sabbath regulations ever, okay? As I read this list, realize you are paying me to do this kind of research. Okay, rule number 10. Number 10 has to do with a Sabbath journey. Pharisees specified that if you didn't want to do work on the Sabbath, you couldn't go more than 3,000 feet from your house. Well, what if somebody wanted to go, you know, 5,000 feet? Well, so there's a way you can work around that. Take enough food for two meals and go put it under a rock somewhere within 3,000 feet of your home. And that converts that little rock into a temporary home. So you can go to that rock, and then you, that's a temporary home. You can go another 3,000 feet from there. That's number 10. Now, number 9, there was considerable debate among the Pharisees about whether it was work on the Sabbath to throw something up in the air with your hand and catch it with your other hand. They said if you threw it up in the air and you caught it with the same hand, that's all right, that's not work. But if you throw it up in the air and you catch it with your other hand, then that's work, you can't do that. But they said if you throw it up in the air and you catch it in your mouth and you eat it, then that's not work. Because once you've eaten it, it's out of here, it's gone, it doesn't exist anymore, and you can't do work with something that doesn't exist. That's number nine. Now, number eight. Let's say you had a piece of fruit in your hand, you had an apple, and you had a friend, and you wanted to give this apple to your friend, and you had extended your hand with this apple to your friend, but before he could take the apple out of your hand, the sun went down. That would be work. <laughs> so what they required you to do was just drop it right there. You couldn't pick it up until Sunday morning. Number seven, you could lift a chair 
on the Sabbath, but you could not drag it. If you drug it, you might create little ruts, and that would be work. (laughs) Number six, rules concerning dressing on the Sabbath. Women were forbidden to wear any sort of jewelry on the Sabbath. Wearing some kind of expensive earring, you may be out on the Sabbath, one of your neighbors would gawk at it, would want to take a look at it. You'd take it off your ear, you'd let them look at it, and without thinking about it, you would begin to walk with this jewelry in your hand. That would be work. Couldn't do it. So in order to prevent Jewish women from making the scandalous and grievous offense, they weren't allowed to wear any jewelry at all on the Sabbath. Now you also could not, a woman could not on the Sabbath look in a mirror on Sabbath morning. Because if she did, she might spot a gray hair and try to pull it out. And that would be work. I decided I'd better not do that this morning. I'd never get out of my house. (laughs) There's even a rule concerning dressing about wearing wigs. You could wear wigs during the week, but you could not wear a wig on Sabbath, on the Sabbath, unless you wore it in your own house. Then it was okay. Number five. Had rules about hunting. Hunting, obviously, was illegal on the Sabbath. Well, what happens if a deer, like, runs into your house? You know, could you, like, close the door to shut that thing in until, you know, until the next day and then kill it? No, the Pharisees decided that would be work. All the shrewd Jews decided, well, we'll just do this. I'll just get a chair, and I'll lift the chair, because I can do that, and I'll go sit it in front of the door, and then I'll sit down on the chair, and the deer can't get out. And the Pharisees, no, you can't even do that. That's work. That's hunting. Number four. They had rules about what you could and could not save in case of a fire on the Sabbath. What happens if a fire breaks out in your house on the Sabbath? Well, you could save copies of the Holy Scriptures, but what you could only save clothing-wise was the clothing that you had on your back. But if you could go back in the house and put something else on top of what you already had on, you could carry that out. But you had to go back out, and then if you still had time to go back in and put something else on, you could put that on and run out of the house. Number three, rules concerning spitting on the Sabbath. This is starting to get really good here. You could spit on the Sabbath, but you could not spit on the bare ground because that would make clay and that's work. So if you, so if you spit on the Sabbath, you had to do it on rocks or on the asphalt. Okay, number two. Number two, you, were for, you could not wear false teeth on the Sabbath. Because, while you're out and about, that false teeth might fall out. And you would be inclined to pick it up and carry it home so your dentist could put it in the next morning. That would be work. So you couldn't wear false teeth on the Sabbath. You could, however, wear wadding in your ear. Okay, that was okay. But if it fell out, you couldn't put it back in. And then rule number one, my personal favorite, I have no idea where this came from. On the Sabbath, you were forbidden to wear any part of a suit of armor or to go around on stilts. Uh, And this is just a representative list of, uh, of the burdensome list of petty regulations and rules that Jesus was contending with. And you can see why, uh, you can see why he was so irritated and, and aggravated at these Pharisees. You know, as he points out in verse 27, he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. In other words, what Jesus is saying is, first of all, God made man, and then for his benefit, he created a day of rest. 
And he insisted that man take one day off a week and rest for his rejuvenation and renewal physically, spiritually, mentally, emotionally, so he would be prepared for another, another week of work. It wasn't that man was made for the Sabbath. God didn't make the Sabbath and then suddenly look around and say, shoot, I've got nobody to observe this thing, and then quickly make man. So it was the other way around. The Sabbath was made for man, not the other way around. And you can see how they had totally twisted this concept of rest and turned it into something that was grievous and weighty and burdensome. Now Jesus quotes a passage of Scripture in verse 25 to support the liberty of his disciples to ignore these human traditions. He answered, verse 25, Have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In other words, what he says to the Pharisees, from your response makes it sound like there's a really familiar story in the Old Testament that you guys aren't even familiar with. Is that possible? Have you never read what David did? David was on the run at this point from Saul for his life, gathered around him a group of friends. They were living in caves. They were living in the rocks. You'll notice twice in this little passage, Jesus mentions that David had companions with him. That's the parallel, David and his companions, Jesus and his disciples. In the days, verse 26, of Abiathar the high priest... He entered the house of God. This would have been the tabernacle. The temple had not yet been built. He entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for priests to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. The consecrated bread were the 12 loaves, called the loaves or the bread of the presence. One loaf for each tribe. And they were kept on display in the holy place for a full week. Uh, And they symbolized that God was fellowshipping with his people. Food being a symbol of fellowship and acceptance and intimacy. And that's what the showbread was intended to symbolize. But God himself had made it clear in Leviticus 24 that the showbread was only for Aaron and his sons. God himself had said the only ones who can eat this bread are priests. Now what Jesus points out is David went into the tabernacle and he and his men ate bread which God himself had said only priests should eat. And he was commended for it. He was not condemned for it. Well, what's the principle here? What Jesus is saying is that human need, notice that David and his friends were in need, they were hungry. What Jesus points out is even the scriptures indicate that human need takes priority over a divinely ordained ritual or a divinely ordained ceremony. See? So what he's saying is it was appropriate to suspend a divinely ordained religious ritual in the face of human need. How much more appropriate is it to to ignore a human religious ritual in the face of human need? And again, in the church, we run into this same contrast. Legalistic Christianity places its priority on ritual. Authentic, liberated Christianity places its priority on human need. Biggest trouble I've probably ever been in my life was when I did a summer internship at a, a church, and I made the heinous mistake of scheduling a bowling party for our college students on Sunday night. And I was called into the deacons' meeting the next week and handed my head on a platter for, for this grievous offense of the Lord's day. And I had compounded the problem, see, by talking about it from the sacred pulpit and by talking about bowling in the house of God. And I was, they were scandalized 
at this. And I was strictly forbidden ever to do anything like that again. And what I remember distinctly about that conversation is there wasn't one question asked by this leadership team about how this little excursion fit into our philosophy of ministry, about whether there was some sort of fellowship purpose to this or whether it was designed to give college students an opportunity to build relationships with one another and spend time together in a relaxed atmosphere to build a sense of community. No concern about whether this outing was meeting any human need at all. Their, their preoccupation was the violation of this religious ritual. Some pastors of another church one time were at a college in the Midwest holding a dorm meeting. And this particular Christian college had rules that the women were to be in their beds at 10.30. The men, for some reason, could stay up until midnight, but the women had to be in their dorm rooms in bed 10.30, lights out. So having a meeting one night in the storm room, teaching the scriptures, the scriptures began to open people's hearts. There was a body lifetime afterwards. People were sharing. Uh, they were reconciling themselves with God. Walls that had been built up between people were being broken down. There was reconciliation, tears, renewal. Tremendous work of the Spirit of God. Suddenly the clock struck 10.30. And into the room blew the dorm mother, you know, looking like the grapes of wrath. And she said, these women must be in their dorm rooms right now. One of the pastors pointed out to her, but, but don't you see God is doing a tremendous work here? We can't, we can't stop this just because there's some, some rule like this. She says, no, it's 10.30. They've got to be in their beds right now. Perceptively, one of the other pastors said, listen, could we, could we talk about this for a minute? So they went into a private office and talked about that rule for two and a half hours while the they, uh, work of the Spirit continued out in the, in the dorm room. Okay? Now Jesus says in the end of verse 28 that not only was the Sabbath made for man, but the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. The Son of Man has the right and the authority to change all the rules that have to do with the Sabbath. In fact, that's what the Son of Man did. He abolished the Sabbath in the early church. That's the only one of the Ten Commandments that is not restated in the New Testament. The Son of Man, who was the Lord of the Sabbath and has the right to do this, dispensed with the Sabbath altogether. Paul makes this clear in Romans 14, Colossians 2. Now, there are some Christians today, well-meaning Christians, who believe that Christians still today ought to worship on the Sabbath. If they had this conversation with Jesus... He would say to them, have you never read Romans 14? Have you never read Colossians 2? Then Jesus illustrates, or Mark illustrates this one more with one more story in verses 1 through 6 of chapter 3. And we see here what the appropriate response to legalism is in the church. It must be confronted. Another time he went into the synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Tradition tells us he was a stonemason, therefore was out of work with his disability, could not provide for himself and for his family. Read this past week in the paper, by the way, that that's the, the latest explanation for the enigmatic and crooked smile on the face of the Mona Lisa, that she was suffering from some kind of muscle atrophy on her right side. I'm full of useless information like that. <laughs> but notice that the man with the shriveled hand was simply there. This wasn't a plant. Jesus hadn't arranged with this man, look, I'm going to work some mojo on you on Saturday morning. Would you please be there at 11 o'clock because I've got this, this fireworks planned? He was just there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. That's a legal term. They wanted to drag him before the Sanhedrin, legally accuse him and cancel his ticket, put him out of commission. And they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. Notice the hardness of heart in these men, not watching to see if he could heal this man. They knew that he could. 
They were looking to see if he would heal them on the Sabbath. Now realize that Jesus had options in this case. He could have simply said to this man, look, this is really not a good time for me. Uh, I can heal you, but if I do it in front of these people, it'll just upset them. It'll just, it'll just offend them. It'll get them all riled up. And we don't need to do that. Let's be more sensitive than that. Why don't you come back after the meeting? Or, or better yet, why don't you come back tomorrow and I'll take care of you then? But I think Jesus realized that the only reason to do that would be to capitulate to the kind of legalistic blackmail and extortion of these Pharisees. This is often what keeps legalism alive in churches, a certain influential group of people who are very outspoken and verbal and just sort of uh, intimidate an entire church into, into conforming to legalism. And Jesus wouldn't have any of that. Verse 3, he said to the man with a shriveled hand, stand up in front of everyone. So he had this man stand up in the, in the middle of the synagogue. I think one last effort on his part to arouse compassion in the heart of these Pharisees for this man's crippled condition. Jesus asked them, which is lawful according to the scriptures on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? Pharisees had developed some very restrictive regulations about medical care on the Sabbath. You couldn't perform an operation on the Sabbath. You couldn't set a broken bone. You couldn't even take a medicinal shower on the Sabbath. If a wall fell over on someone, you could dig through the rubble to find out if they were still alive. And if they were alive, you could pull them out. But if they were dead, you had to leave them there. Couldn't even close their eyes in death until the next morning. This was contrary to the whole scriptural spirit of the Sabbath. I am here on the Sabbath to save life, to renew life. I'm here in the, in the spirit of the, of the scriptures teaching about the Sabbath. Why are you here? You are here to destroy a life. You are here to kill someone. I see in your hearts you're here to look for a reason to kill me. Which of the two of us is really here in the spirit of the Sabbath? But they in hardness of heart remained silent. Verse 5, he looked around at them. Very vivid phrase. Looked all the way around the synagogue room, making eye contact, I think, with each one of these legalistic Pharisees. In anger, this enraged him that their hearts were so hard that they would place their their petty little religious, religious ritual ahead of the obvious need of this man. And he was also deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts. Notice he was grieved in his heart over what the hardness in these men's heart was doing to themselves and others. That's the distinction between righteous anger and self-righteous anger. Righteous anger is an anger which is accompanied with a sense of grief over what this individual is doing to himself and to others. Self-righteous anger just simply blazes away in anger. And he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And vividly over a distance of 32 years, Peter remembers this man stretching out his hand, his shriveled, withered hand. And as the entire synagogue watched into verse 5, his hand was completely restored, instantly returned to health. Well, that was the trigger mechanism for Jesus' death. Verse 6, the Pharisees went out and began to plot with Herodians how they might kill Jesus. Jesus indicates here what the proper response to legalism is is in the church. It must be confronted. You can't hope it will simply go away and fix it all by itself. It must be confronted. And there may be considerable cost in that. It costs Jesus his life. I know of a man who found a real legalistic spirit in the church. He was pastoring this church. He came to them and said, look, this is not right. And they said, look, this is our church. You can't tell us what to do. And furthermore, you worked for us. So he was stunned by this response, talked to an older, wiser man who encouraged him to go back, which he did, and say to them, well, first of all, in gentleness and love, you've got a couple of theological errors here. One, this really is not your church. 
This church belongs to the head, Jesus Christ. And furthermore, I don't work for you. I work for him. And they said, well, fine, you can go work for him someplace else. And he was fired on the spot. So confronting legalism can be costly, but the alternative is deadlier. Now, the, the point of this story is that Jesus came. He offered his very life. It cost him his life to set us free from this kind of petty traditionalism and, and rigid uh, approach to the spiritual life. It's appropriate for us to establish memorials for people who have died to set others free. And that's really what the Lord's table is all about, which we're about to celebrate together. It's our memorial to the death of Christ who died to set us free.